Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. I was contacted through an email from a woman named Gina shortly after I appeared on another podcast. She wrote about the abuse she suffered for three years from a man she was engaged to, but this wasn't the first time she was abused emotionally, physically, or sexually. She thought she could make him a better person, and like many who have attempted this, it only got worse. Today, I welcome Gina to the When Dating Hurts podcast series. I hold a special place in my heart for Gina and other victims and survivors of domestic violence. Each of these stories has many similarities, but each has unique instances where if they had known more, maybe they would have been able to avoid horrible circumstances and torment from someone they actually thought that they loved. Gina, thank you for taking my invitation to tell your story today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Really glad you're doing this. So Gina, if you don't mind, perhaps we can uh, take a few steps back to what life was like before it began to turn into a kind of personal nightmare. Can you take us back as far as you want to go to to what life was like when maybe it was more peaceful? Okay. Well, I am quote unquote typical of domestic abuse survivors in one way in that I witnessed abuse in my household growing up. Mm-hmm. There was physical abuse, there was emotional abuse, there was sexual abuse. So before grooming was a term, I think what happened in my household inadvertently groomed me to move into this relationship that became very dangerous for me. Okay, so so you said quite a lot there. Okay, <laughs> let me see. So you say there was already kind of domestic violence going on. Now, is that is that your father? Yes, yes, that was... That was Yes, that was between my parents. Mm-hmm. And and my father was was the aggressor. My mother, both my parents were narcissists and my mother could be very emotionally manipulative. My father was more physically manipulative and, and it went on between the two of them, just like what they subjected us to. 
So it was a real back and forth battle there from the standpoint of emotional and, and, and physical on his part. Yes. And unfortunately, none of that happens in a void. Children are inadvertently and without their will pulled into the middle of that sort of thing. And, and that's what happened as I was growing up. Now, was it you and other children too? I have an older sister and a younger sister. My dad's physical abuse was not directed as much at me. I was sexually abused by my dad. Oh, really? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, it. Uh, thank you. Yes. How old were you when that was going on? The first time that I remember, I was eight, and it went on until I was around 12. Oh, God. Oh. Hmm. Did you let anybody else in the house know that this was going on, or was it one of these things where dad said, if you tell anybody, bad news for you? Yes, exactly. There there were threats, and sometimes abusers in that scenario will be very kind and funny and fun, and, you know, you feel special, and then sometimes it's it's threats and, you know, that sort of thing. Primarily, he used threats to, to keep us quiet, and at eight years old, you certainly don't want anything to happen to your other family members, and so you, you don't say anything. And there's always a lot of, there's always a lot of guilt. You know, you, you made me do this. I wouldn't have done this if it weren't for you. So when you're eight years old and you feel like you're the one that, that caused it, you're not going to tell anybody. How was it sent up that you caused it? Well, there was a, there was one instance that my mom knew about. Okay. She walked into the room and my dad, when he realized she was in the room, backed away and she looked at me as though I had done something wrong. That made it easy for him. Yes, very much so. And we were also part of what I would consider to be an evangelical, ultra, ultra conservative church. And so we were kind of raised with that mindset of you're born a bad person and it's just by the grace of God that that you might have some good things happen to you, but it's not because you deserve it. Okay. So th- there were a lot of there were a lot of aspects of my life that that played into all that, and some of that was purposeful on my parents' part, and some of it I think was just, you know, living in a small town and and the era, you know, when all this was going on. It was it was the early seventies. I was thinking, when was this? You're right. So this goes on till you're twelve years old, at least in terms of it happening to you. Right. When are you finally free of him or free of that house, or how did you kind of like? get away from that? Well, my parents separated for the first time when I was 10 years old. And there was a five-year period of time where my dad would move in and there would be this honeymoon period between them and then it would get bad again. So they didn't divorce until I was a sophomore in high school. But around the age of 12 or 13, we were on vacation and my mother made a really big deal one day about how I was starting to grow pubic hair and I would start my period any day. And I remember at the time being so embarrassed because she was just going on and on and on about it. In retrospect, what I think that was, was a red flag to my dad that, you know, you, you, she could have babies now. She can get pregnant now. Now, now that's all, that's speculation on my part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's wise. After years of therapy and and reading a lot about how, just how that whole dynamic works within a family when one parent's doing something like that and the other one silently condones it um, mm-hmm. to be able to keep the house that they're living in or their social status or whatever it is. 
So I think it was a message to him. You got to stop this. What do you think that may have been going through your mother's mind while this was going on over the course of time? What is she thinking? I'd rather have him bothering you than bothering me. Or what do you think? that? Um, I mean, I don't well, see how you can look the other way. Yeah. My mom was a narcissist. My mom was an only child. I think there were, you know, again, that was in the thirties. Her dad passed away when she was in grade school, just a few years post-depression. So obviously things were not sunshine and roses for her all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, my mother would never have an honest discussion with me about any of this. So a lot of this is just kind of trying right. to understand okay. it from my standpoint. I think my mother saw financial stability for the first time in her life. Okay. She didn't want to rock that boat. She didn't want to rock that boat. I think she was very comfortable not having to work. We had your basic three bedroom, two bath ranch house, which was what everybody in that little town aspired to. Mm -hmm. And my dad was finding some financial success about the time that this started. And it started, I've realized looking back over the timeline, it started within just a few months of when his father passed away. And if if you talk to people about rapists and child sexual abusers, that's typically not about sexual gratification. It's about control. And it's about feeling feeling oh, like they yes. have some control yes. and power in a particular situation. That's kind of what, again, through a lot of reading, a lot of research, you know, therapy, that's kind of what I've pieced together over time is that it, it, my mom just did not have any interest in rocking the financial boat. Yeah, talking about taking the good with the bad, that's an extreme <laughs> yeah, case. Yeah, there. it was. <laughs> mm. and, and to have the, you know, to have the hyper-religious young women are supposed to be virgins and we're not supposed to nobody's supposed to see us unclothed or this or that or whatever a particular church, not even a denomination, but a particular Mm. individual church is teaching. There were a lot of those dichotomies that from my earliest memory, I just remember thinking, we're not doing at home what they're saying to do at church. So it was Mm -hmm. a lot of, I had a grandfather who was absolutely wonderful. He was not my biological grandfather, but he's the man I always knew. If I was going to tell anybody, it would have been him. But again, when you when you get this message from your earliest age that you're dirty and you're wrong, you know, I was ashamed of what had happened. And I think he might have even physically stopped my father, but I didn't want to put him in that position. And I didn't want something to happen to him. I could see that coming. Yeah, he was a World War II vet, and he was a very gentle, peaceful soul, and, and he had to step in several times when there was physical abuse that left the household and kind of, you know, crept out into the world and other people knew about it. He had to step in and, and protect us at times, he and my grandmother, and I just, I wasn't going to put anything else on him. You had a lot of reasons yeah. to do that. You wanted the best of him, and you didn't really right. see that go right. away. So dad gets out of at least that part of your life when you're 12. I didn't, I didn't see him. We moved out of state when I was 17. Okay. And I didn't see him very much at all the last couple of years, you know, from 15 to 17. Cause I just put my foot down and told my mother, I'm not going out to that house. I'm not, I'm not going out there. We're, we're not going out there by ourselves. That's not happening. And I'll be happy to tell mm. a judge exactly why. Mm. He did show up at my high school graduation uninvited, and then I didn't see him for 16 years by my own choice. 
he had a lot, lot, lot of mental health issues. And I'm certainly not making a correlation between if you're mentally ill, you do these types of things to children. I know that's not the case. Yeah. It was just literally, you know, his choices were a culmination of his life experiences. And a lot of it was how he was treated when he was growing up. But at the time, after high school graduation, I had a little bit of autonomy and I had the power to say, I'm not going to see you again. I'm not doing this. And my plan was to never see him again. Yeah, I guess so. Not looking forward to uh, Christmas or anything with this man. Right. Right. So here we are now. We're in our late teens or so. Then, then what do we have? Well, I graduated from high school. Was not really wanting to go to college. I wanted to move out and get a job. And I knew I would go to college one day, but my mother and my sister really, really pushed because they were afraid I'd never go to college. Are you dating at all during um, this time? Or are you? I had a boyfriend for about a year in high school. I dated a little bit. Um, I mean, did it seem un- unimportant to you? Or do you think the whole dad thing just kind of cast a cloud over men in general? Well, we very much, we very much receive the message, especially as, as females, again, with my, with my church background, if you have any sexual urges or desires or you lust, then, you know, you're a whore. That was just it. That was the bottom line. In addition to that, the message I received from my mother was that sex was horrible. It was painful. You had to do it once you got married but you just did it to keep your husband happy. So I was not particularly motivated. (laughs) I mean, again, I dated a little. So there was, you know, the hormones were doing what hormones do when you're a teenager. And and there were certainly boys that I found cute and boys that I went out with. And, And the odd thing was those last two or three years of high school when I was dating, the young men I dated were very sweet and very kind and very gentle with me. Ultimately, Bill. I think that bored me because what I saw that I perceived as love growing up was yelling and passion and not, not good passion. Yeah. Not good passion, but like you couldn't, you couldn't just have a gentle, sweet interaction. There was yelling. Had to be rough, huh? Yeah. It had to be really big and there had to be a fight. And then there was the makeup period. And I just, yeah, I I mean, I haven't really thought about it, like whether I was uh, officially interested in dating, but I think looking back on it, I just thought, I don't want to deal with this. I just don't think I want to deal with this. It's a real snore. Like I got some other stuff I want to do. You know, I had never heard it sent up quite like that. And I I can see how you kind of came into it through a door most people don't know about. Yeah. So now you're rolling into your early 20s. What's going on then? Well, when I was, I went to college one semester, as I predicted, it did not go well because I just, I needed to, I need, I needed to radically change my environment. I didn't need to live at home anymore. I really needed to get out on my own. So I quit college. So it was college from home? Yes. Yeah. The first you, you semester was- You weren't in a dorm is what I'm saying or anything like that. No, 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 no. Okay. My mom needed somebody at home to help with my younger sister. So for you, so, college was like the next year of high school. I'd, absolutely. There there were no perks. There were no parties. There were no okay. sororities. There were no football games. Now at freshman orientation, that's where I met this man. Okay. And- it is not unimportant to also overlay on top of how I pretty much felt about it anyway. He did the pretty typical love bombing in the beginning. Mm. We met and got serious pretty immediately and didn't date anybody else. Just mm-hmm. were immediately kind of, you know, locked together. And he decided pretty early into that semester that I didn't need to go to college. 
Oh, there we go. So I have a little streak in me, which I think has served me pretty well. And that if somebody tells me I'm not going to do something, sometimes I'll dig my heels in and decide to do it. So <laughs> at that point, I really kind of wanted to continue college, but there there were already some pretty significant underlying threats there. The, the hitting had not happened yet. If you don't mind, take me to the love bombing. Give me examples of okay. what he was doing. Okay. Because some people don't even know what that means. And and uh, I, I do, but I'd like to hear your version okay. of examples. Okay. We met at freshman orientation, and I don't remember the whole process of like who got whose phone number. I don't remember any of that. I actually, for a couple of weeks after that, went out with a friend of his a couple of times. They were in a band together, and he immediately started telling me, hey, this guy's cheating on you. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. And you deserve somebody better than that. You deserve somebody that's going to worship the ground you walk on. Now, who's who's telling you this? Is this the friend of the eventual guy? No. This is, well, this is the abuser. I start dating a friend of his. We'll call the friend Sam. So you weren't Um, interested in the, well, so um, the friend is Sam, but who's the, let's give a name to the abuser for a minute. um, We'll call him Bob. Okay. I'll try to keep that straight. I just came up with that. So we'll see. So I went out with Sam for a couple of weeks. Sam seemed super nice. I really liked him. And you weren't really that interested in Bob yet. Is that fair? I was, I was, yeah, I was not particularly. And again, and you know, I say two weeks, maybe it was a month, you know, this was, this was mid eighties. So, so yeah, we, we dated a little bit. And then this guy just almost immediately said, you know, you need to know he's cheating on you. You deserve so much better than that. You, you deserve somebody that will just worship the ground that you walk on. Mm. And and that's kind of how it started. So I broke up with this guy, broke up with Sam, and he was out of the picture, started dating Bob, the abuser. Yeah. Yes. And it was little stuffed animals. And I I worked at a grocery store at the time and he would pop into the grocery store just to let me know he was thinking about me. And, you know, this was long before computers and cell phones and all that kind of thing. So you, you kind of had to make an effort to to do those sorts of things. And I had never had anybody love bomb me before. So I just Mm -hmm. thought this was the best thing since buttered bread. And this must be what love is like. And I just, I, I I just felt like somebody finally appreciated me and and loved Mm -hmm. me for who I was. And it's in the movie. um, Oh, in the Julia Roberts, Richard Gere movie, she says something about, you know, do they, do they pull little boys off in gym class in junior high and teach them how to hit like that? Well, my question was always, do they pull them off to the side and give them a user manual for how to lure you into an abusive mm. relationship? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it is literally textbook it, it how is. this sort of thing can work. Yes. And that just, ba- you know, that just boggled my mind. And especially back then, you know, I didn't realize, it never occurred to me that that's what was happening, that I was being lured into an abusive relationship. I lost my virginity to him. So that was... That was a pressure that he started putting on me very early on. I finally did have sex with him just just to get it done. I mean, and I hate that, you know, I hate that for myself that that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's a memory that's in there. But we were together for almost three years and and he the physical abuse started and I was a whore. And why was I looking at that guy and my I have on too much makeup or my skirt is too short. You know, he was in a band. So I would go with him to places where he was playing. And of course, he couldn't sit right there beside me the whole time. So anytime he took a break, whether I sat stock still in front of him the entire time, there was always this barrage of, I saw you looking at that guy. 
what were you doing when you were in the bathroom? Were you right. getting high? Well, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't know what getting high was. I was such a sheltered kid growing up. So it just became this constant. And again, you know, gosh, it's, it's so sad to look back on, but, but there was the love bombing and, and then the control and the manipulation and the abuse started. And then, you know, the first time he hit me, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And he begged me and he was so sorry. In, and in what way did he hit you? How did he, what did he do? We, we were coming home from one of his gigs where he had been playing at a, at a club there in town. And he was accusing me of, of getting stoned in the bathroom. And I just kept saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And I finally said something. I used a curse word. I can't even tell you which one it was, but it was basically, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And from in, I was in the passenger side of the car and he just reached over and backhanded me okay. and slapped my face and banged my head into the window and that sort of thing. And literally mm-hmm. immediately slammed on the brakes, pulled over, cried. He's so sorry. He just would be so lost. He wouldn't be able to make it if he lost me. Went and right to the apology. Sp- yeah. Oh, super duper thick now. And I do remember thinking as I lay in bed that night, this is the reason that God put me through all this growing up so that I could help this man. Oh, there we go. And yeah, now we're going to move into the enabling stage. Yeah. And, and the fixing, you know, yeah, this is the only yeah, the only reason that God would have let me go through something like that was because I had a bigger mission. So again, it's it's such a combination of the choices my parents made as I was growing up, the church environment that I grew up in, just the culture that I grew up in. It all played into, it all made perfect sense looking back on why I made that choice and, hmm. and how, how things ended up the way they did. Um, yeah, I see that. That all really lines up. It's interesting how in each case you were sort of set up to fail or set up to take the wrong turn at every fork, at every fork in the road. One quick thing is, did he start isolating? Did did he start getting you to kind of lose some of your friends? Was it was there isolation in there too? Yes. And and one of the things that played into that that I think made it even easier in our situation. We had moved to a new state the summer before my senior year in high school. So where are you at this point? We had moved from Tennessee to Alabama. Okay. So far enough away that it was a new school and new people. And so I didn't feel like I had a lot of really close friends. And I had lost touch with a lot of my friends where we grew up. So it was very easy for him. Wow. You know, I had maybe two really close friends and, okay. and he just kind of squeezed them out. And And also, I had to really, really, really it's like an attorney arguing a case. I really had to argue my case for us to spend any time with my family. Wanting to ask you that next, your sisters. Yeah. Yeah. He, he really wanted us to spend the vast majority of our time with his family and his family. They were very kind and they were very accepting of me. And, and it's not that I, that didn't bother me. I enjoyed spending time with them, but even to carve out any time to do anything with my family on the holidays, Everything was just an argument. Do you think his family had any sense of what he was like? Oh, absolutely. I was not the first woman that he treated this way. Sadly, I probably wasn't the last. Okay. His mother, he and I got into a big, big, big argument at his house. And I say argument. I was sitting in the floor crying and he was screaming at me. And his mother came and just looked at me and said, let's go outside. And we were engaged at that point. We were probably about a year and a half into our relationship. Hmm. And she said, 
anything he's doing today, he will do after you're married. Wow. Good for her to say that. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I just remember thinking, okay, I, I need to, for how, however it happened, I had the wherewithal to stop and think, I don't need to let this, I don't need to let this slide. This, mm-hmm. this, I need to remember this moment. This is his mother telling yes. me that that's yeah. what's going to happen. The last person. Yeah. But even still, you stick with the program. Are you still thinking that I got a lot of work ahead of me, but I'm going to get this guy on the right track? Um, I think that's probably the point where I allowed myself to think about trying to get out of that. Mm-hmm. One thing that played out in this relationship with me, and I've heard other other people who come from this situation say the same, it took me about a year to get all my things that were at his house back in my house without him seeing what I was doing. I had a lot of clothes. I had a stereo system at his house. And what I started doing is I would bring, I would get out of church with my mother and go to his family's church. So I always had a bag of clothes and I started putting a little, a couple of extra items of clothing. Oh, that's good. So it, it went on over about the course of a year because I knew if I just said, I'm, I don't want to see you anymore. I can't do this. I knew it wouldn't be safe for me to try to get that stuff back if he said, yeah, just come on out to the house. Because he lived with his parents, but he could have set up something where his parents weren't there. You know, sure, and, and this sure. was a situation where he stalked me. He called me multiple times a day. I would get in trouble at jobs. And it was all, I've, I kind of have some friends and we joke about, you know, it's all the stuff you see in the Lifetime movies or it's all the stuff you see on Dateline. Like it was, he constantly had to know where I was he wanted to make sure I wasn't talking to anybody else or as much as two people could who worked, you know, full-time jobs in other places and that kind of thing. He just, he had to have a grasp on everything. And I couldn't tell anybody that I was planning on breaking up with him because I couldn't run the risk of them saying something to him. Not letting it slip. Did you ever right. marry, do you actually marry this guy? No, no, I did Oh, you not. never did. Okay. No, no. I, I thought maybe you'd jump past that. Wow, you did not marry him. Good for you. No, thank you. We broke up at about, well, the almost three-year mark. I had moved into, I had moved into a little attic apartment, and I had not seen him in about a month. He kept trying to pop into my life, and, you know, I would stand in the parking lot by my car at work and talk to him for a few minutes. And enough people knew what was going on then that like people I worked with would, would say, are you okay? Can, you know, do you want us to stay until he leaves? And I'm like, no, I think he thought we were going to get back together. I think I labored under the delusion that maybe we could be friends. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause this had been my first serious relationship. And, I can see that you know, happening. I, I'd lost my virginity to this man and I didn't want to have this string of, I didn't want to have people in my life that hated me on the planet. I would like for us to have had some sort of, even at that point, I was still deluding myself into thinking we could have some sort of peaceful coexistence on the planet. Unfortunately, when I let him know that that wasn't the case, he came into one house where I lived in the middle of the night and I woke up and he was sitting on the edge of my bed. Oh. And he told me that he, I needed to know that he could always get to me. Oh. Um. I told him my landlord was a friend of his brother's and I just said, listen, I'm going to call your family. This is, this is not okay. Um, and he did leave that night. I moved to another place and he showed up there 
and told me that he could fix it where nobody would ever want me, and he raped me. Yeah, that's what he did, right yeah. there. And and, there. and I wow. was and I was I was very quiet because the people that I rented from lived downstairs and they were elderly, and you know, yeah. again. You, you don't want to cause any trouble. You don't want to get kicked out. You don't want to get evicted. And I unfortunately got pregnant and oh. ended up, ended up choosing to terminate the pregnancy. It was a difficult decision, but it was absolutely the best decision for me. I remember at the end of the day thinking, I can't give a child the kind of father that I had. And if that means I rot in hell, then I just rot in hell, which I don't believe that now, but that was very much my mindset when I had to make yes, that choice. Of course. Wow. That's a, that's just, you have been through the trials. Oh my goodness. It was, it was a lot, but, um, oh. I think. Did he ever know you were pregnant? Yes, he, he did. Oh um, he immediately called a friend of his that was in a band that was getting ready to travel and do a little bit of, of touring. And he was never like. He was not a successful musician, but I mean, they would tour a little bit through the Southeast. He immediately called that guy and, and I had told him what was going on. And I just said, you need to know this. And if we are going to try to work this out, we have to do it sooner rather than later. And he called me the next day and told me just to do whatever I needed to do. And he went on the tour in the meantime? Yeah. yeah and he left town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a big guy for you. That's yeah. courage. Yeah, he told me who he was over and over again. But I, I do also remember at the end of that thinking, because he had me convinced that I was used goods and that I was dirty and that nobody would ever want me. And I just remember thinking, you know what? That doesn't scare me anymore. I'd rather be by myself for the rest of my life than live the way you expect somebody to live. Oh, that's that's just, uh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, uh, Okay, so let me breathe for a second here. That's a lot. Sure, um, you know, it is. You too. It is. So you got through that. Here you are. What doesn't destroy you only makes you stronger, and you seem to be that person for sure here. So then what? I can't guess. Where do we um, go from here? So I, I mean, Is that was, for him? He goes on a tour, and for the most part, you don't have anything to do with him? Or he must he fly goes through on, a few more times, right? Uh, he goes on tour very briefly, just long enough to not be in town for me, not to have to go with me to have the procedure done. Yes. And then he comes back and we go through this period of time where like he sent me a card at one point and said, we could have had a family and you destroyed our family. And it was just that la those last mm -hmm. ditch efforts to manipulate and guilt me. Mm -hmm. And right. I had started back to college at that point. I was much more confident, much less fearful of him. I think I had taken a lot of my power back at that point. Good. He tried for the next few months to come back and then he started dating. Again, we were I was still in a small town. This was this was not the town I grew up in, but it was still a pretty small town. He started dating someone that I knew who she was. Hmm. And of course, just like in our scenario, they got serious immediately. A family member of hers actually reached out to me at one point and said do we need to be nervous? And oh. I said, if you think you need to be, you probably do, but I'm not getting in the middle of this for my own safety. I can't do that. That was wise. Well, and it was hard because I felt, I felt a sense of responsibility. To, can I save this person from going through what I went through? But she was a little bit older than me and had a very supportive family. And, you know, at that point, the counselor that I was working with said, 
it's not your responsibility to save her. And it sounds like she has grown up in a good environment and she has a lot more tools in her toolbox to make some good decisions oh, right good. now than you did. Okay. That's a, that's a, so. that's a refreshing outlook. And that's a, an educated outlook. When you say you yeah. went to a counselor, is this a domestic violence counselor? This is a psychologist, social worker. Who is this? This was a, a licensed clinical social worker through okay. our county mental health center. Okay. And and that person you would say was very helpful to you, would you say? Overall? Yeah, I had um I had a couple of different people uh, during the time that I was in that area. Yeah, yeah, it was incredibly helpful. It was it was really important for me as an adult, but also as that little child who grew up with so much trauma. Mm-hmm. I really needed to see that everybody doesn't live that way. Mm-hmm. And it's not normal. And it's not what you should expect. And still at 56, there are absolutely things in relationships that I struggle with. I struggle very much with being able to tell somebody when I'm unhappy about something. And I kind of cut to the chase at my age and just say, listen, you need to understand the example I saw growing up was if you disagreed with somebody, somebody got hit. Mm-hmm. So it takes me, a, it takes a lot of courage for me to, even with people that I know rationally, are never going to lay their hands on me, would never put their hands on me. I think you always contend with a little bit of that fear when it's so ingrained in you at such a young age. So you're afraid if you disagree with somebody, you're going to pay for it on the back end oh, somehow. Ab- yes, there will always be a price to pay. Yeah. And and I'm still, I mean, I've been in and out of therapy my entire adult life. And I'm with somebody now who's really helping me dig into some deeper layers of all that. I don't know if if you hear this from other other people that you interview, but mm-hmm. COVID brought out some old coping mechanisms for me and ones that weren't particularly healthy. Okay. Um, one was avoidance. Nothing nothing detrimental, you know, no no drugs, no alcohol, that sort yes. of thing, but yeah. very much coping mechanisms that I utilized as a child when I really felt like I had no control over what was happening. And that kind of peeled off another layer of the onion. So the last couple of years, I've really been working on those core feelings and the core consequences for me, even though they weren't my actions, of not ever feeling like you had a safe place in those early formative years. And and that, I won't say that's a struggle, but I think that's something I will deal with and think about and journal about and talk through with people who have the education and the resources to help me see things differently. I think I'll do that for the rest of my life. I just, I think Mm -hmm. it's what's healthy for me. And journaling is part of your therapy too? It is. It is. I have always, thank you. I've, I had a really great imagination as a kid and that was a wonderful coping tool that I have tried to keep, but I've always enjoyed reading. I really enjoy writing. I'm actually starting to to do that on a little bit bigger scale. I've had a couple of monologues either published or performed at wow. different theater spaces and I'm working on a young adult fiction novel. Oh, good for you. Yeah, we're 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 going back and giving that little girl the power to to save herself. So I'm really oh. excited about it. Oh, geez, that's I know, I know. It's I'm I'm no, I'm I'm very I... happy for her. I'm I'm very <laughs> I'm very happy for that little girl that feels like it's okay to, to come out of the dark and, you know. Yeah. yeah I mean, you had a lot of your childhood. Say some things. Yeah. Your childhood was stolen from you, you know, and yeah, 
and kids can be so innocent and so pure when they draw and when they write, you know, they just mm-hmm. say things and you look back and it's can seem a little infantile or juvenile, but the purity of it all just carries. And so it's good to get in touch with those type of things. But yeah. so you've been journaling since you're maybe, I mean, what single digits? I did more reading then. I probably started really journaling from a therapeutic standpoint in my early, early 20s, just out of that relationship, really wanting to, again, I didn't want to make the same mistake again. My whole logic with the things I went through in my childhood and the things I went through with this abuser, I just in the back of my head kept thinking, I am not going to let these people get me. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to let these things dictate how I feel about myself or you know, I just, I wasn't willing to do that. When the physical abuse parts happened, besides hitting you or, or whatever else happened, were you ever strangulated? Was that part of it? He did not do anything that would leave a bruise where anyone could see it. Oh. Um, I had a lot of marks on my arm. I did not have any tattoos back then. So uh-huh. I learned to wear long sleeves. I mean, it was like grabbing you toughly. Is that yes, why? absolutely shaking me, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. He would, he punched my leg one time and I had a big bruise on my leg and I just wore long skirts or, or pants until that went away. He was, he was pretty smart about that. Again, I guess that's in the manual that someone gives them down the line about how to be an abuser and not get caught. I think the only time there was any risk of me having a bruise on my face was that first time that he hit me. And he um, backhanded you in the car. Yeah. Yeah. But it did not bruise. So. Did you ever hear more about the, the woman who followed you? You know, the, the one that came after you? Did you um, ever hear any more about that story? I knew, I knew her parents were not at all happy about that. I kind of purposely did not, I, I didn't reach out to ask them anything. I didn't, I knew I had to make a pretty clear break and not, you know, not try to get into that for my own safety as well as it wasn't my business. They were adults. And I was also raised in a family that wouldn't have known a boundary if it had hit them in the face. And I think that's why a lot of people grow up. So I really did not learn anything about boundaries until I was into my adulthood. And that was one of the first big ones is, is understanding that, A, I didn't have a responsibility to whoever came after me, but that I didn't have the power to fix any of that. No, you made it through this long nightmare. And I I can see on your face and I can sense that you've gotten your power back and you'll never allow someone else to defeat you again. And, and that's, as I said earlier, why I just love people who are victims and survivors, you know, that, that, uh, I just, my, my admiration is real and, um, I just feel for everybody. You know, I, I, we've had this tragedy in our lives, but I haven't had that happen to me personally or my wife or son. Right. And I was going to say, one thing that I've learned over the years, because it was easy for me in my early years to just put all the blame on my parents and say, well, you know, if I had not had that environment growing up, I wouldn't have chosen this person. Well, that's not true. And listening to your story on uh, the podcast that you were on and just listening to other people's stories, so many survivors of abuse or victims of abuse that, that end up being killed by their abuser they could never fathom somebody doing something like that to them because they didn't grow up with anybody that would ever have done anything so horrible and hurtful 
So there's no, there's truly no boundary line that you can cross and say, well, it's this financial demographic, or it's the people in this neighborhood, or it's the kids that go to this school. This can happen and does happen to any Joe or Jill next door. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to remember. And, you know, even at age 50, 49, 50, before I got into the relationship that I'm in now, and, and he's a wonderful human being, I briefly dated a guy right before that, that would never have laid a hand on me, but he was just this bitter, horrible, confrontational, just nothing was ever his fault and everything had to be drama. And I just, I remember when I got out of that relationship thinking, dang, like this is a reminder <laughs> to me, like I am not bulletproof just because I went through that in my twenties and, and did good. spend all this time getting strong. I still this much, not into the deep end, but I still for three or four weeks was pulled into this thing. And yeah, so it was, and and you can get pulled into those types of relationships that aren't romantic as far as just an imbalance of power or, or somebody being verbally abusive, or, you know, you can have friendships or, or relationships with coworkers or bosses. And, you know, it's, I just think it's important to know that no matter what you've been through, you're never bulletproof. You need to always trust your instincts and trust your gut about things like that. I think that's really great to, to remember and to tell people. Maybe I'm attracted to people who are survivors so much because they're honestly such nice people. And I think that people who are abusive seek out really nice people because they can dump their garbage all over them and they come back again. You know, they come back more or they think it's their fault, which is, boy, that's that's a real plus if you're abusive to somebody that yeah. that that I can abuse who turns it around on themselves and say, you know, well, I guess I should have warmed it better or I should have made what he really liked. I forgot it was Friday. And, you know, so it's yeah. it's like that. But I do want to ask you before we close, what advice do you have for those listening in who've been touched by domestic violence as victims or there may be bystanders who have friends who they see going through this? Or, or what would you say to current victims, let's say even, but what kind of advice would you kind of sum up your thoughts for them? Well, there are, there are resources available that either weren't available in the eighties when I was going through this, or I just wasn't aware of them, uh-huh. but there are, you know, there are hotlines, there are domestic violence hotlines and there are local facilities that can help you it's very scary and it's very isolating. And I have been that person who, you know, had to watch everything they said on a phone call or even whose phone call they picked up. And it just gets to be such routine to minimize yourself and minimize your feelings. And, and for me, what I call trying to make yourself a small target, Mm -hmm. just trying to stay under the radar. So you don't, you know, spur this person's wrath or whatever. It's really, really difficult to reach out. And sadly, sometimes when the person who's being abused gets away is is when things escalate, which they did for me. I wasn't killed and I'm incredibly obviously grateful for that, but, but I was raped and, you know, it wasn't, his goal was to get me pregnant so that, you know, who wants to be with a 20 year old single mom? You know, that, that was his logic. Plus, you would be bonded together. 
Oh, there's the child there. Yes, a thousand percent. I think the thing that kept me going was we are meant to have lives that are happy. A hundred percent of the time, absolutely not. Unfortunately, we live in a flawed world with flawed people, and we are all flawed to some extent. Mm-hmm. But no one deserves to live a life of oppression and abuse and being talked to like they're a second class citizen or being told that they're they're a whore. You know, no nobody deserves that type of life. I I hesitate to put a lot of blanket advice out there because I'm not a professional in the industry. I think the thing to try to keep in your mind is is even if even if you don't feel like you deserve that, would you look at your six-year-old self? Would you look at a little six-year-old girl walking down the street and go, "Well, you're you're wrong. It's all your fault. All the stuff that's happening, it's your fault." Well, that's you. Mm-hmm. That's you. That's who you are. And if you wouldn't say those things and you wouldn't expect a six-year-old child to tolerate and live in that, then do whatever you can in your power to create a better situation for yourself. Yes, that's great. And and I think that, that people like you who have come forward and, and speak out about these types of things, I think really help to empower those who are going through similar circumstances to say, you know what, I need to get to this earlier. You know, I need to recognize it for what it is. I need to deal with it earlier. It's nice, you know, the Hollywood ending with all these things is that that you'll be able to turn this person around and this person will be the person you first thought maybe he was or or whatever that is. You know, you kind of want it to be the best Facebook page that's out there. You know, everything's mm-hmm. just, yes. it's just lovely. Not real, but lovely. Right. And I think that, you know, I hate to be such a downer, but I've talked with a lot of people who are domestic violence counselors and I've said, what percentage of abusers really turn it around and they sort of drop their head and they go quiet and they said extremely few i mean they it's make, almost they, non-existent they'll say i don't know bill two or three percent four percent so if you think that you're so good that you can you can beat those odds i'd say i i wish you the best but but it won't be it won't be fun and yeah. chances are you you won't pull it off and it's yeah. not your job anyway it's really not right. your job right Another piece and and a thing that kind of, as we were talking, resonated with me, I had family members who really pushed me to leave this guy and their hearts were in the right place, but it pushed me farther and farther away from them. And maybe closer to him? Closer to him. And then when things did escalate, I thought, well, I can't go back and say anything now because all they're going to do is say, I told you so. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know so that's, a, that, that's a dynamic. It's a real dynamic. It is. It absolutely is. And it's so, I've also been that person who saw somebody in an unhealthy relationship and I just wanted to charge in, guns blazing, pull them out of there. You can't do that. You know, all you can do is tell them, I love you. I am here for you. There may be a scenario where you have to say, I have a hard time being around you guys because I don't feel like they treat you well. But never ever, ever close a door. That's wonderful. Because if they feel, if they feel like there will be some empathy and some compassion and some support there, part of my issue was I just, I didn't feel like I had anybody that I would want to put in that situation. And I had not had anybody look at me and say, you 
will never be wrong for for reaching out to me and telling me this. And and I don't blame other people in my life at that time. That's not what I'm saying. But it, I think we again we know so much more now about how this process works and how abusers work. Always let people know that the door is open. Always, you know, you can call me anytime if you call me and say meet me down the street at McDonald's in five minutes. I'll be in the back of the parking lot. Don't ask questions. Just get mm-hmm. in the car and go. Mm-hmm. Ask, ask right. them if they're safe, you know, and, you know, that sort of thing. There's just a, there is a lot of unconditional love that has to be felt by the person who's being abused before they feel safe reaching out to try to get out of a situation. Yes. I, I'm and glad as you humans, remembered to say that. Yes. Yeah. As humans, we're not really good at unconditional love. Unfortunately, we're, you know, hopefully we're all getting there and we're all on a journey to try to, to try to do better. But it is, it is difficult to watch somebody go through that. And it's difficult to know that they're, that they're struggling, but just try to try to let them know that door is open. Yes. Because if you're a bystander, you're a friend, you're a parent, you want it to end right now. Oh, of course. Absolutely. You don't want it for that person and you want it over with. And my God, can't you see what this person is doing to you? And I know my daughter's friends, they were like that and like, well, at least get away from him and get some space from this guy. And yeah. she was just getting to that point in the last week or so of understanding, get some space. And he yeah. caved her in and one more time, pulled her out of a beach house that she was supposed to be for Memorial Day weekend. And and there's Memorial Day weekend and she was killed on June 3rd. So you end of May, beginning of June, and and uh, that's the way it went. But I'm her so, friend was trying so, so hard. Yes, yes, I appreciate that. So Gina, there's so much to be learned from your experience, and I mean, in terms of knowing earlier on that this relationship was abusive, and and uh, that your feelings were trying to warn you to break free, and that trusting your feelings can protect your balance and happiness in life, and maybe virtually save your life for that matter, and that we need to take careful steps sometimes to make our lives safer and that seeking out professional help as you did with a social worker is mandatory. You know, and you mentioned national domestic violence hotlines, which uh, the number is 800-799-SAFE. I always tell people the hard part to remember is the 799. The rest of it's pretty easy. 800-799-SAFE. And that uh, seeking out professional help is so helpful most of the time that, on the other hand, we uh, we just can't do this by ourselves. If you're in that relationship and you think you'll be able to steer your way out and figure everything out and get out safely, chances are you'll need a little more help than that. And, you know, one of the things that, that people are coached to do nowadays is they have to get some help, get with people who know what they're talking about and to develop some kind of a safety plan or escape plan as you did on your own. You know, you, you were wise enough to know that if you just pulled up and started pulling things out of that house, that wasn't going to work. But on the other hand, if you were to go there and little by little take a few things and over the course of time get your most precious things out of there or what most necessary things, mm-hmm. that you'd probably be able to pull it off and you did. So that was really, really good. I like that. Well, thank so, you. Uh, I do want to throw in a couple of things, um, of course, and and I I don't know if you want to incorporate these. Please, you know, people say, well, why were you with this person who was an abuser? Well, if he walked up on your first date and slapped the shit out of you, you wouldn't go out with him again. There's gaslighting that begins from the second you commit to spend any time with that person. Oh, good. And again, 
I, I don't know. I don't know how abusers around the globe know to do what they do. But, and for me, that goes back to trust your gut. You know, the, the gaslighting, it had happened to me in my childhood. It had happened to me all through those years growing up. Even after my dad was out of the picture, my mom would still use gaslighting as a, as a control tool. So pretty quickly into that relationship, I was so turned around emotionally. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sh- I wasn't strong enough to leave or even start thinking about a plan until it had been going on again for almost well over a year, probably almost two years. What kind of gaslighting did your mother pull around the house on you? At one point after I had moved out and this relationship with this person was over, I was dealing with the sexual abuse from my dad in therapy and I confronted my mom and just said, I need you to acknowledge that this happened. This is... This, I, I will spend the rest of my life dealing with this. And my mother just looked at me and said, I made it up. Oh, that you made it up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, um, how about that? I didn't see that coming. Whoa. Yeah, I, I had a sibling ask me one time, question, ah. yeah, question whether or not I was telling the truth. And it was never from a standpoint of you're making up a lie. It's just that, oh, you were a kid. You didn't understand what was going on. I'm sure that's not what it was. But that's mm-hmm. gaslighting. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. It erodes your confidence. It takes away your self-esteem, and it keeps you off balance. Yeah. And if you buy yeah. into it, you go away saying, wow. I mean, it seemed like it happened. It seemed like it happened a lot. Yeah. But I wonder if it did happen. Yeah. So you deny your own feelings. Absolutely. You know, remembering these very specific experiences and, you know, what led up to it and what happened directly after it. And there are people looking at you saying that you know, that didn't happen. You're making that up. Mm -hmm. You dreamed that. I can't tell you how many times I had people say, oh, you just dreamed that. Children don't dream sexual abuse. They don't understand what sex is. So that's, you know, that's a big part of it. Yeah. There's no imagination that's going to fit that together. Right. Exactly. And why would a child want to? Children imagine fun things and happy things and adventures and that sort of thing. But the gaslighting, even if, even if you didn't experience it growing up, Gaslighting is such a ferocious, insidious tool. And if somebody starts it with you, it's going to come up in almost every interaction you have with them that is any more serious than what are we having for dinner? Mm-hmm. You know, any mm-hmm. conversation of any magnitude, they are going to work that conversation to their advantage. And I, this is not an excuse, but I think sometimes people do it and they don't even realize they're doing it because they've done it for so long. And again, that is absolutely no excuse. But, you know, I was a smart kid. I made good grades. I had a good job at the time. I was productive. I was creative. I was not, I was timid and I was a shy kid. But if you open the door and let that in, the first time you get an inkling, wait a minute, this is, I don't know what they're saying, but this is not how this happened. You got to acknowledge that. You got to acknowledge that because there's, there's a gut feeling in there. There's, there's a part of you in there that's saying, okay, let's think about what's going on. Let's, let's get off this roller coaster. Let's get off this emotional roller coaster with all the great highs and all the low lows. And let's just think about what's going on right now and get a little perspective on it. That's so astute. You know, I'm just, Considering all the things that happened to you, the fact that you were able to 
do such a thorough job of figuring out, sorting, and making sense and logic out of what happened to you is just um, so impressive, I have to tell you. I mean, well, thank you. Thank you can you. tell I me just... you're a smart person, but I figured that out about a half an hour or more ago. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, I can't point back to one specific thing other than from a very, very early age, I remember thinking, you know, looking at my parents and thinking, I don't want to live like this. And the dichotomy of being around my parents as opposed to being at my grandparents' farm where everything we did was great. We were the fastest runners. We were the smartest. All of our pictures that we drew and our tests were on the refrigerator. And we were just the best thing in the world. There was some seed planted Mm -hmm. that what was going on over here Mm -hmm. was not the only choice you had. And because I was in it in my childhood, I don't, I'm not angry at myself. I don't blame myself, but I needed to work out some unfinished business. And I think that is the reason that I let this man in. There was a comfort level with who he was and how he behaved that I was comfortable with because it is what I had seen growing up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Another kind of tongue in cheek joke that I make is, you know, I got my dad out of my life and then I ran out and chose the person who was more like him than anybody I'd ever laid my eyes on or have ever laid my eyes on since. And I just latched onto them for all it was worth. Do I wish that experience hadn't happened? I wish I could be where I am now and have the knowledge that I have without having had to go through that. Yes. But that's not how I got it the hard way. Yes. But that's not how life works. And I have really. I have dug in and really tried to not let those things put me in eternal victim mode. I am not a victim. I am a mm. survivor. Yes. And, and that's an important distinction, depending on where you are in, in your therapeutic journey, if you're listening to this. I don't like it when people say everything happens for a reason, because there are a lot of really crappy things that happen in the world to people who don't deserve it. But I do feel like there are lessons. And when something really goes sideways, you know, and I'll just use COVID as an example. And this was true for everybody on the planet. I own a business that is hand to hand and we had Mm. to close for weeks and weeks. And I just remember thinking, I cannot, however, this comes out on the other side, I cannot have gone through all this anxiety and all this stress and all this fear about my future and not have learned something from it. Mm. Good for you. And I do, so I, I really try to be open to the lessons. We don't deserve the crappy things that happen to us. We don't deserve to be abused. We don't deserve to be left or hurt or, or in a car wreck or anything else for that matter. But there are always lessons and there are always things that we can take away from these experiences that we can use to help make the world a better place. You've done it. There's no doubt about it. You've done it. Thank you. I'm working on it. I'm working on it <laughs> every day. On. Well, I see success already and more to come. Thank you. I feel so good that we had a chance to get together here and do this. Thank you. Me too. Thank you so much and blessings to you and your family. And thank you for the work that you do. It's it's really important. Well, thank you very much. And I'll tell you, I really mean this, that getting to meet people like you who I admire and really so many other, and they're mostly women that I've met who are strong people and women who've been through so many horrible things. And then so many women who've helped them get through it. When I'm invited in, you know, I, I take it as a, a real honor and I take nothing for granted, believe me, you know, 
So, uh, well, anyway, thank you. It's we'll, it's important. We'll it's Im- thank you. You know, there are there are a lot of people in my life that know this story, but there's no. I mean, there's no shame. I didn't do anything to deserve the things no. that happened. Mm-mm, no, and that's the case with really all survivors all victims and survivors, you know, they're taken advantage of and they're just trying to deal with this heavy weight that keeps coming at them 24 seven. And yeah. So, you know, I, I sort of look at it, there are survivors and there are survivors in waiting, you know, working their way through it to, to get to it, swimming over there. Absolutely. So, yep. Okay. Well, look, you take good care and I'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you, Bill. You too. All right. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now, in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.